Why don't we pray before we dig into God's word this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Dear Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing, not only in our Stephen ministry, in the giving and receiving of care, but also throughout our church body. We're reminded on this Memorial Day weekend uh, that we don't take the gift of freedom we have here to worship you uh, for granted. And so we thank you for those who've given their time in military service, and especially thank you for those who at times have given their very lives for us to enjoy this freedom today. And for those who may be in our midst who have lost a loved one in war, I pray that you give them comfort. I'm reminded of the words of Abraham Lincoln who said, I pray that our Heavenly Father may leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. And so, dear God, remind us all that life is short, that each day we have is a gift, and we pray that you will enable us to become resolved not to squander our days, but free us from our own selfishness. Give us a greater capacity for doing the right thing, for service to one another, for loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lead us all in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. As we look at your word, open eyes, ears, and hearts for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in New York City or any city, and maybe you're running late, you're trying to go to a play, and um, you push one of those crosswalk buttons to kind of get the light to turn, but then nothing really happens? I found out that the city of New York admitted several years ago that the vast majority of their walk signal buttons are no longer active, having long ago been replaced by automated systems that keep all the lights on a set timer. In other words, they don't actually do anything. Yes, that's right. Uh, We were pushing what essentially amounts to a dummy button. It's not hooked up. It's like a placebo button that doesn't actually work. Yet we press them and we press them and we press them, thinking that these buttons are speeding us through life, giving us the illusion of control when they actually have no power at all. Friends, what if you discovered that some of the spiritual buttons that we Christians push to try to change our lives don't actually work? The button I want to talk to you about this morning that many Christians push, I'm just going to call the try harder button, the try harder button. I'm not as godly as I should be, so I should try harder. I'm not as pure as I should be. I should try harder. I'm not as patient as I want to be. I should try harder. We hit the try harder button a dozen times a day because there is in each of us a desire and a longing to do the good we know we ought to do. But friends, while a desire to please the Lord is important and wonderful, what we fail to realize is that the Scriptures teach us that we actually don't have the ability in ourselves, in our flesh, to make that happen. Take it from someone who hit the try harder button more than anybody in this room, the Apostle Paul. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Friends, the Bible teaches that you cannot fix yourself. That's the problem with willpower. Your will lacks power. Just think of New Year's resolutions. In January, I was like, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. I'm doing it. New year, new me, baby. I'm going to have, like, not just a six-pack, like an eight-pack, okay? I'm not just going to run one Ironman. I'm going to run two Ironmans this year. Then by mid-February, I'm like, 
you know, if I could just make a 5K happen this year, that'd probably be good enough. What happened? The will fatigues over time. That's the problem with self-help. The self that's trying to help you can't actually help you. Now, I realize this is not what we want to hear. Trying harder actually does work in other parts of our lives and in our society. Hard work is very respectable and highly esteemed in our culture. We are a culture of doers. Uh, We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Uh, Bob the Builder asks us, can we fix it? And we say, yes, we can. And so because we've been trained to think this way, we're going to have a hard time letting go of this belief when it comes to the spiritual realm. But we must remember it was the Lord Jesus himself who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when it comes to my spiritual problems, when the question is asked, can we fix it? The answer, according to the Lord Jesus, is no, you can't. Now, I don't mean to criticize the value of hard work. After all, that too is upheld in Scripture. What I'm saying is when it comes to spiritual growth, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the spiritual life and the fruit of the Spirit, we have to realize that our own human effort is not the source of spiritual power to cause spiritual growth in us. Spiritual growth is brought about by the Spirit of God. That's what I want to talk to you about today, how we grow in our spiritual formation. We've talked about our core values the last few weeks, like you see those up on the screen. And today I want to talk to you about this value of intentional spiritual formation. Let me start today with a definition, because it might be a term that you're not actually familiar with, and you think, I've heard of that, but what is it really? Is that something new? And it's not something new. It's actually something very, very old. I've been greatly helped by Robert Mulholland in his excellent book, Invitation to a Journey, in this, where he defines spiritual formation this way. Spiritual formation is the process of being formed in the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of others. Think of it this way. You have an outer person and you have an inner person. And so the outer you, which is being formed all the time, for better or for worse, in a similar way, there's this inner you, inner thoughts, inner feelings, inner desires, habitual patterns, that's also being shaped all the time, for better or for worse. And so this is the process that the Bible calls sanctification. As a Christian, the idea is I can ask the Holy Spirit to form my life. And so I have a challenge for you before we dig into the meat of the message. Think of some area in your spiritual life where you've struggled and you've had a very difficult time achieving victory in that area. And just keep that area in the forefront of your mind as we talk today. It's so important because some Christians kind of treat their faith like it's life insurance. You know, I accepted Jesus. I, I prayed the prayer. Yeah, yeah, I got that. I'm covered. I'm going to heaven. But Richard Foster says this. Heaven is not the goal. It is the destination. The goal is that Christ be formed in you. One of the challenges, though, with this is how do we measure the spiritual formation process? Other parts of church life are much easier to measure with attendance and finances and so on. But if you hire a pastor of spiritual formation like me, how do you know if I'm doing a good job? That's a good question, right? How does spiritual formation even happen? Well, let me share with you first how it doesn't happen. There's a few false models uh, that I'm taking from a book called Spiritual Formation as if the church mattered that I wanted to share with you first. The first false model or myth of spiritual formation is this, the quick fix model. 
the quick fix model. This is the idea that a believer can be zapped spiritually. But God never zaps us and changes us instantly. Spiritual growth is patterned after physical growth. There are periods of growth and then periods of stagnation. That it's a process. Coming to Christ is not a quick fix or some secret that we learn that makes life all of a sudden make sense. No, it's a process. Martin Luther described the process this way. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. Then he goes on to say, The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. In other words, the Christian life is progressive, and there will always be an opportunity for me to continue to grow from now until I get to glory. There are ups and downs. I bet if I met with you and I asked you to kind of chart your spiritual progression, you too would show some ups and downs on your spiritual maturity chart. It is a process. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's still working on me. God's still working on me. Yeah. He's still working on them too. It's okay. Yet sometimes it kind of feels like two steps forward, one step back. But there is progress. Yes, the spiritual life sometimes feels like a yo-yo, up and down and up and down. But the scriptures teach us that it's actually like a yo-yo in the hands of a man going up an escalator. In other words, God himself has you in his hands, and he is growing you into the image of his one and only son. But there's no quick fix. The second kind of myth out there is what we call the facts-only model. Facts-only model. This model gravitates toward acquiring information as an incentive for spiritual growth. But again, although knowledge and information is a wonderful thing, that is an incomplete model. We're not talking about information here. We're talking about transformation. Just out of curiosity, let me ask you guys here in the room, how many of you know people who are so smart and they know so much about the Bible and theology and church history, but yet they're really kind of arrogant and kind of lacking in love and really kind of pretty immature spiritually? How many of you know somebody like that? Yeah. Okay, you put your hands down. How many of you know somebody, though, on the other hand, they never had the opportunity to really study or read the Bible or theology, but yet... God himself has done such a purifying work in their lives that when you're around them, you feel as if you're almost in the presence of Jesus himself because he's such a reality in their lives. How many of you know people like that? Yeah, you put your hands down. That's what I'm saying. Information is great, but it's not the whole thing. Uh, The third myth is what we'll just call the emotional model. This is the model that overbalances into the deep zone of emotional experiences. But if you study the great spiritual thinkers over time, you'll find they had a term for this, and they called it consolation. Consolation just means the felt presence of God. And there's great pleasure there. But then if you also study these thinkers, you find that these same spiritual giants had a term for something different that they experienced called desolation, which is the felt absence of God. There were times of deep pain and sorrow. There was the dark night of the soul where they went, God, where are you? But it's not that God had left. He was always there, but he was teaching them something in that dark night. And so what they would say is that there are these phases 
in the Christian life. Like First John says, there are those who are babes, and then there, there are those who are, are young men, and then there, there are those who are mature. And they said that those who are babes in Christ, they begin a relationship with God, but they love God for pleasure's sake. Because when you first come to Christ, he gives you that consolation and that great pleasure. But then over time, in order to grow us, on purpose, God begins to remove that feeling of consolation and pleasure. And we think, wow, something must be wrong. But it's not that something is wrong. It's that God is teaching us that we need to learn to serve him, not for our own pleasure's sake, not even for our self's sake, for a much deeper reason, for God's sake, because he deserves to be served. See, this is why the psalmist says things like, I was like a weaned child in my relationship with God. See, what happened? God was removing the bottle. He was removing that source of consolation. He was removing the pleasure so that I might become less self-focused and more God-focused. And ultimately, that is what spiritual formation is all about. The fourth myth out there, I'm just going to call the conference model. Uh, This is when somebody seeks to attain a mountaintop experience in a large ad hoc assembly. Students, this is when you go off on a retreat and you have kind of a spiritual high and then you come back and you're like, I am going to change everything about my life. And then a week and a half later, the high is over. Not to say retreats are bad. I've had many wonderful experiences with God on those occasions, but I'm saying spiritual formation is so much more complicated than going away for a weekend in the woods. Here's a few models on the screen that are very much incomplete. And it's interesting to me how different personality types sometimes gravitate towards those different models, don't they? It's also interesting to me that people love to look for like what they call a silver bullet in their spiritual maturity process. But there is no such silver bullet. God uses many different ways to shape us and mold us into the image of his son. Now, how does he do it? Well, I want to remind you of a famous scripture in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this very well-known story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, those people at Millington Baptist. Have you seen them? My goodness, thank you that I'm not like them. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, I want you to be very careful about how you read this passage, because it's very possible to read this ironically. And what I mean by that is you begin to think, I want to thank you, God, that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee. But friends, apart from the grace of God, we're not better than that self-righteous Pharisee either. The tax collector receives mercy here, not because there was moral virtue in his humility. He receives mercy because it is the character of God to show mercy. Now, what's wrong with the Pharisee? What's wrong with the Pharisee is that he is conceiving of his spiritual life or the spiritual formation process like it's a path up a mountain that he needs to climb. You see, we all have our paths up this mountain. Study my Bible. 
prayer, do the disciplines. And none of those things are bad, but the Bible doesn't teach that you do those things in order to achieve a new level of spiritual formation by your own efforts. No, spiritual growth is not a climb up a mountain. Rather, it is a slow descent into a cave. Here's what I mean. Spiritual formation is not growth up, but down. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are not familiar with this concept of spiritual formation. In fact, you might be thinking, I don't buy this. This doesn't make any sense. I thought we were progressing here. Yes, but it's not progressing the way you think. Hear me out. Growth in Christ, advancing in spiritual maturity, comes as we discover more and more of our neediness. Because the more mature you become, the more aware you become of your sin. To the point where we, like Paul, at the very end of his life, would say, I am, present tense, the chief of sinners. There is a great temptation, though. And the temptation is this. The temptation is to perfect oneself in one's own effort and power to relieve the burden of spiritual failure. It is the attempt of the Christian to use obedience, service, Ministry, just being good. All those things to relieve the burden of our spiritual failure. So we come Sunday and we hear a sermon and we think, you know, Pastor Bob said, love my neighbor as myself. You know, I'm told today I should love my wife. Here I hear I should be praying without ceasing. And I go, oh God, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that enough. God, I need to do that more. I need to try harder. That's a trap. That's the same trap the church at Galatia fell into in the first century. Let me just remind you of a few verses from chapter 3 of Galatians. Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Notice the flesh there is not those sinful, lustful habits. The flesh is the moral effort to do good on our own. No amount of human effort can relieve our burden of spiritual failure except Christ. When we don't measure up to God's standards, we have failed. And we naturally think, I should work harder. I should try harder. But in that moment, instead, what we should do is run back to the cross and drink in his grace again and again and again. Let me put it this way. The Bible does not teach that you are a fixer-upper waiting for Chip and Joanna Gaines to come and work on you. The Bible teaches that you are a complete gut job. And the Holy Spirit needs to build something totally new, and you have to tear your whole life down. Paul said it this way in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. You're not a fixer-upper. You say, how about my foundation? That needs to come up too. Nice try, though. You're a house that needs to be torn down altogether. And only when there's a smoking, smoldering crater in the ground where your life used to be can God begin to do anything new. 
Now, if you're like me, I have such trouble believing this. So many of us are like that guy in the Monty Python movie, Search for a Holy Grail, who gets in a sword fight and he gets his whole arm chopped off, but he keeps on fighting, trying to minimize what has happened. It's just a flesh wound. No, bro, your whole arm got chopped off. Tis but a scratch. No, Jeremiah 6.14 says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. The problem is, it is serious. Isaiah chapter 1 says, I've been wounded from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. Somebody call 911. Yet even so, there is still this temptation that I can cover my bad with my own efforts. We see this right from the very beginning. We see it right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, that here our first parents, they provided their answer to sin and guilt in Genesis. Remember the first thing that they did? They sewed fig leaves together for loin coverings. The first human response to something wrong, notice, is not, oh God, what has happened to me? Their first response to being aware of something wrong is to hide. I'm not too sure what would have happened if they would have maybe admitted the fact that they had done something terribly wrong, but we'll never know because that wasn't their move. Their instinct, the instinct that we all have of moralism, when we become aware of our bad is to turn inward. You immediately turn inward and say, what do I need to do? How can I cover myself? The problem is you can't. It's much more serious than you can handle. How do we grow? Through exhortation? Through trying harder? Romans 8 says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Blaise Pascal put it this way, Asking a sinner to do good is like asking a man with no legs to run a marathon. You can't do it. Imagine this morning was kind of rainy and you kind of ran your car off into a ditch. And you tied a rope to the front bumper and you attached the other side of the rope to a few kittens. You said, I'm going to pull my car out of this ditch with these kittens. And then somebody comes up to you and says, you're not going to be able to pull out your car with kittens? And you say, why not? I've got a whip. Friends, nothing wrong with exhortation. The problem with exhortation is the capability of the one being exhorted. Romans chapter 7, the desire is in me, but the doing of the good is not. We are all like kittens trying to pull a car. We all have no legs. See, this is so different for those of us who, like me, lean toward moralism and who want to try harder to keep the law. See, when I fail, the law says, Dave, just just try harder. Just don't do that next time. Do it again. You'll get it. But the gospel says, Dave, you're a failure, Dave. On your own, you need me. You can't do it anymore. Would you please give up, Dave? Dave, you must learn to abide in me. Here's grace, Dave. Here's me, Dave. Don't you want me? Don't you want to be filled with me, Dave? Here's my yoke. 
My yoke is easy because it's me. And Dave, you have no idea what kind of journey I want to take you on. I want to open your heart, Dave. I want to search it. I want to split it open. I want to take you on the journey of a lifetime. I'm going to take you down, Dave. John Coe says it this way. The Lord wants to take you down, but it is going to be the most loving takedown you've ever experienced. See, this is the good news that the tax collector found that day. It wasn't good news because of his good works, though. All of our good works, Isaiah says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. No, it was because of God's grace and God's grace alone, and he received it by faith alone in in Christ alone. Just imagine this tax collector being 20 years old when he first prayed that prayer. And imagine for the rest of his life, until he was 80, he lived a perfect life. And he was a model for the church, gave his entire life in service to God. 60 years of good works. If he was 80 years old, he would still need to go to the Lord and pray that same prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Why? Because he would know his good works contributed nothing to his justification before God. And we, like him and like Paul, must all go to God and say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then when we come, we all, like the tax collector and like Paul, rejoice and say, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the only thing that makes me right is Christ. And so when we say we believe in justification by faith alone, what we really mean is we believe in justification by Christ alone. And we say, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the good news that melts my heart of stone. But without that good news, my heart is frozen inside of my chest. Because unlike whatever Elsa and Anna have told you, only the gospel can melt a frozen heart. The gospel is like a heat laser aimed at our frozen hearts, frozen inside of an ice ball. But when the gospel hits it, it melts it, Out comes gushing water of the Holy Spirit, driven by good works. And when we get this, it turns our hearts into boiling rivers of love. That's the power of the gospel. That's why we want to be gospel-centered. That's not just true in our coming to Christ, as we said last week, though. That's also true for the rest of our lives. Do you remember there was this quote that Pastor Bob shared with us last week? I don't know if you remember it. It was from Tim Keller. I'm just going to remind you. He said, we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. Listen to the words of Jen Wilkin. She said this, don't reduce gospel-centered to justification-centered. The good news is more than our freedom from sin's penalty. It is also our progression from sin's power and our ultimate freedom from sin's presence. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are all the gospel. 
In other words, God saves you by his grace, and then he grows you by his grace, and one day he will present you faultless before his throne by his grace. So here's my thesis for this morning. If you don't remember anything else I've said, please remember this. Just as you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, so also you grow by grace alone, through faith alone. Just as we were saved by the gospel, so we grow by remembering the gospel. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, The reason you've fallen into sin, brothers and sisters, is because you have forgotten the gospel. Look at what Paul's all describes in his book, Who Will Deliver Us? What is sanctification? He says this, It is the carrying of good news to the unevangelized territories of our person and social being. Sanctification is justification extended. Wow. In other words, if justification is God's regarding us as perfect through the mirror of his own son's perfection, then sanctification, which is growth in grace, is our receiving that regard palpably and with larger and larger extension throughout the complex geography of our being. This process is as long as life itself, as the gospel reaches to darker and darker places in the cave of our hearts that we didn't even know existed. So here's the point. Spiritual formation occurs through a recapitulation of the gospel. The word recapitulation just means a reenactment. It means we come again to the cross, to the cross where we first saw the light. Remember when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet and Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to wash me. And Jesus said, well, I don't wash you. Then you'll have no part of me. And then Peter said, well, let's go ahead and have a bath. Let's paraphrase a little bit. Jesus said, you don't need a bath. But you're still sinful and you still need to come back to me for cleansing every single day. In other words, as John Murray put it, Christ's blood is the laver of initial cleansing but it is also the fountain to which the believer must continually go. It is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning, and it is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart in the tears of confession and contrition. Spiritual formation occurs not because of your moral effort. Spiritual formation comes from being reminded of how deep and dark and sinful you are and then remembering and applying the gospel in that area. That means growth in grace requires grace. This is what God calls us to do. Uh, Eugene Peterson put it this way, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin. It is impossible to do that. It is to recognize sin. Spiritual growth is backwards. As I said earlier, it is not up, it is down. Now, now maybe this for you is a totally new concept. Maybe you've never thought about it like this before. But I just want to assure you that this principle is actually not that unique or even counterintuitive as we find it elsewhere in the universe. Here's two examples. Those of you who have made your way up through the educational system, you learn that the more you study, you realize how much you actually don't know. How many of you realize that? Yeah. Same principle. There's a similar principle in nature. Before growth happens organically, 
It must go die in the fall and winter for it to grow in the spring. The spiritual principle I'm teaching is nothing more than that. You grow by dying. There's not a place you can go where you take your cross where it doesn't end up with you dead at the end. Now, the reason why this is difficult for us is not because we can't get it mentally. The reason why this is difficult is because since our first grade teacher told us we were a snowflake and we've been fed a steady diet of self-esteem our whole lives, we don't want to believe this because there is a natural human tendency to exalt itself. We like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We love stories with unlikely heroes. We like to watch movies like Mission Impossible because we know in Mission Impossible, it's actually not impossible. It's just very unlikely. We love that character arc. We love Rocky, the nobody, goes up to defend himself and beats Apollo Creed, the champ. We love Han Solo this weekend, the zero who becomes a hero. We love that narrative story. Friends, here's what I'm trying to teach you today. The Bible teaches no such character arc for you. When we think we want to exalt ourselves like Peter and say, Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll die for you. I can do it. Jesus looks at you and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Your death is good news for nobody. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite of the hero arc. And the fact that that's even jarring or disappointing actually is the problem I'm talking about. We want to be the hero. We want it to be about us. We want to be the center of the story because we're naturally self-centered. But although there is great grace and mercy and hope for us in the Christian life, we must realize there is still only one hero in this story, and his name is Jesus Christ. The gospel does not begin with you. It begins with him. It doesn't end with you. It ends with him. It is not about telling you how great you are. It is telling you how great he is. So what can we do, you say? We can do exactly what the tax collector did in that passage. We humble ourselves. We turn to God in repentance. Spiritual formation is a lifetime of repentance. Not a very popular term nowadays, because we think of that, we think of a group of protesters with sandwich boards or something like that saying, repent, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about biblical repentance, a rending of the soul because of sin, a turning away from sin, a feeling about sin, how God feels about sin. And over and over and over again, we learn this is exactly what God calls us to do. I could give you a hundred examples, but here's one from Isaiah 57. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. If you want to meet with me, the place you're going to meet with me is not in the Ark of the Covenant with the tables of the law. You're going to meet with me above the Ark at the mercy seat. That's where I'll meet with you. That's where my presence is found. So the challenge for us is whenever we find in ourselves something displeasing to God in whatever relationship or situation we're in, we need to learn to become the biggest, fastest, deepest repenter in the room. In other words, don't wait for somebody else to criticize you. You go ahead and criticize yourself first. Don't wait for, you know, to get caught. Go ahead and bring it out into the light first. 
this is not a one-time event. This is a lifestyle. It's something we do every day. 500 years ago, when the Reformation began, Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And the very first thesis says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, repentance is not a place you visit. It's your permanent address. And every time you repent, here's what the Bible teaches. God will not stay away from repentant sinners. Whenever we repent again and again and again, God's love explodes in our direction all over again. And we receive the gospel all over again. And then after we repent, here's what God does. Let me get you to focus, not so much on yourself anymore, but for every one look at yourself, I want you to take 10 looks over there at your Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to look at my son, the son that I gave you. Now consider him fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Set your mind on him. Look at him. See in him my love and my mercy and my grace and my gospel for you again and again and again. See not only the greatness of your sin, but as Bob said last week, the greatness of his rescue. And our view of Jesus will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger throughout our lives. And that's what God wants for us. We must see the enormity of Jesus. We need a view of Jesus that is titanic. And thank God in the gospel, we have such a mighty Savior. That's how we grow, by beholding him, which is the last point. Spiritual formation is relational. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more you become like Jesus Christ. Scott Saul says it this way. If you want to be more like Jesus, you should focus less on being more like Jesus and focus more on being with Jesus. This is the lesson of Mary and Martha, isn't it? This is the lesson Paul learned in Philippians 3. Everything my flesh came up with is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus, my Lord. I just now want to know him and behold him and be transformed from glory to glory. But Hebrews 12 says he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the potter. I am the clay. He is the one shaping me into the image of Christ. And thank God for that. Friends, the bad news is we all have broken legs. We're all kittens. We're all zeros. The good news is that Jesus died and rose again for our sins and rose from the dead, and then he turns to you, yes, even you, and says after you repent, this person went home today justified before God. So how can we take this truth and apply it not only individually, but make it part of our culture as a church here at NBC, which brings me to that word intentional. Because I do think we should bring intentionality to the spiritual formation process, though I don't want to be making this into a works-based thing. As Dallas Willard said, though, one time, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And so there is an essence in which we can say, like 2 Peter chapter 1, to, to make every effort. And so here's four examples of ways that we can intentionally engage the spiritual formation process. Number one, individually, open yourself up to the Word of God. When you read the Scriptures, don't read it for information. Ask God 
for the scriptures to read you. Hebrews chapter 4 says it this way, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and able to judge, that's the word kritikos, to critique the thoughts and intentions of my heart. This is what God does when we open ourselves up to him in the word. And and, and verse 13 goes on to say, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to to, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what's the word of God supposed to do? It's supposed to slice open the heart by the spirit of God, by the God who sees all, by the God who wants to penetrate and open your heart. The word of God is supposed to slice and dice and open up your heart. So this is about allowing now the Lord to begin to do surgery with the word so that we might come to him and repent again. Two, open yourself up to the spirit in prayer. In prayer, come out of hiding. Let your prayer life be one of, God, I want to share everything with you because that's where the love is at. That's where the transforming power is at. That's where the transformation of the soul is at because authenticity in prayer gives us a chance to struggle with God and have a fresh experience of his forgiveness again and again and again. Three, open yourself up to others in community. Be real. Refuse to be hidden. Be authentic. Share your struggles with others. We should be asking this question. Every adult ed Bible teacher, every single small group leader should be asking this question. How can we create environments which are safe for people to go down into the cave of their hearts together with us? And how can we remind them of the good news again and again and again in our adult education groups and small groups? Lastly, fourth point. Not only open yourselves up to others in community, but lastly, open yourself up in ministry. If all of this is true, then we should learn to be more comfortable ministering out of our weakness, not our strength. Some people say we minister out of the overflow, out of the abundance. I think that's wrong. We minister out of weakness. We are, like Henry Nouwen says we are, wounded healers. If you always minister out of your strength, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to get strong. Boy, that's tough. I know that. I'm tempted daily to do that. That's not where the real strength is. The Bible says my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? Let me close with this. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of discouraged in your Christian walk. You don't feel like you've been making much progress lately. Maybe you feel like you just keep on falling down. And maybe you're here at church today. Maybe you're still kind of hoping against hope that there's still somewhere in this world where you can get good news. You're hoping against hope that the, the, the gospel you heard when you first came to Christ, that you're forgiven and that you're loved, is still true, that it's still your story. And maybe you're here today kind of as a parched soul, and my hope and my desperate prayer for you is that you would let me just offer to you a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. God wants to speak to you, and God wants to say to you, the gospel is still good news for you. The Spirit is still at work in you. Today, God wants you to get back up and remember his gospel again. The Bible says this, for though the righteous fall seven times... They rise again. That's the spiritual life. Close with one more story as the worship team comes. My dad used to watch westerns, and sometimes I would sit on the couch and watch with him. And there's this one classic called Fistful of Dollars with Clint Eastwood. Those of you who've seen the movie, you know the scene. 
Final scene is there. There's smoke everywhere, and Clint Eastwood kind of emerges out of the smoke with his cowboy boots, and he's ready for a gunfight, a showdown. There he is, face to face with like a half a dozen of his enemies, and they've all got loaded guns. After a quick pause, one of them takes a shot at Eastwood. Eastwood falls down to the ground. But strangely, he gets back up. The guy takes another shot. This time, Eastwood just kind of staggers a little bit. One of his buddies says, if you're going to shoot to kill, you better aim for the heart. All of a sudden, all of his enemies start unloading all of their guns on Eastwood, and he just takes every single bullet. And at the end, when they've emptied all of their rounds, Eastwood is still standing there. And then he lifts up his coat, and he shows he's got this big old steel plate underneath operating like a bulletproof vest. And then Eastwood just takes out his gun and mows them all down. (laughs) Friends, every time your sin tries to take you down, remember, you are now wearing the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. He already took the bullets of sin, and you now stand forever righteous in him and forever forgiven because of him. So get back up. Allow him to vanquish your enemies of sin. That's the power of the gospel that once saved you, and that is the power of the gospel you still need to live the victorious Christian life. Amen? Can we pray?